Bibles with you, why don't you turn to the book of Revelation? Dear refuge of my weary soul, the Bible says that we can flee to our hope, to flee to our hope in Him as though He is our refuge. And we're going to see just how true that is, especially when times get tough. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to be looking today at verses 1 to 6. You know, looking what's going on around us these days, I thought that we would do a summer series, or at least for the next few weeks, on uh, heaven. Americans tend to put all their eggs kind of in an earthly basket. I struggle with that all the time myself, rather than, you know, a heavenly basket. And this can get you into trouble if your basket starts to fall apart. And I'm sure that's already happened to some of you and may yet for more of us. Uh, So, you know, so often Christianity is known for giving them hell, right? And this summer, though, I'd like to, you might say, I'd like to give you heaven. And today I'd like to do that to begin today. We've got enough hell already going on. And we're going to be seeing that heaven is not just a pie in the sky and the sweet by and by. No, it can make an incredible difference to how you live your life right now, to a life well lived. It's not an escape. It's essential for living as God wants us to do in the here and now, knowing what's going to happen in the hereafter. According to the Orthodox Christian view, some of you might not have known this, but it's not just one heaven. Heaven will come in three phases. And it's really important that we get this straight. Most people don't realize it. The first is called the intermediate state. That's where we go right now when we die. We go to be with Jesus, those who know Him as their personal Savior. The third part of heaven is called the eternal kingdom, which will come after this earth and all of heaven, the Bible says, pass away. And God will create a new heaven and a new earth, free of sickness, where there will be no more crying or mourning or pain. But before the eternal kingdom will will come what we call the millennial kingdom, which is the thousand-year rule of Christ right here on this, uh, this old earth. And the Bible says that things will get really, really bad first. And, of course, we need the bad news before we'll really appreciate the good news in a lot of ways, including in our understanding of heaven. The Bible says that there will be a global collapse. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it will eventually. A global financial collapse and a global political collapse. And out of that is going to emerge a one-world government with a single currency and one financial system ruled by one man. And the whole world will look to that man to, to save them out of all their problems. He's called the Antichrist. He'll be like Hitler many times over. Hitler in disguise because he'll look good. And then Christ will come and he'll claim the world as his own. And he'll come and he'll establish the millennial rule, as we call it, the golden age of a thousand years. When he will show that he alone, Jesus Christ alone, is worthy, Jesus Christ alone is able to rule the earth as it needs to be ruled. The same one that was born in a manger. 
The Bible says that the government one day is going to be on his shoulders. For unto us a child is born. Remember what we read at Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 4. Unto us a son will be given, and it leapfrogs to the millennium from there, from the birth to the millennium. The government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. He'll establish a thousand-year rule of peace. And to the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Unlike any other government, there's always been an end to. For a thousand years, there will be no end to his. You know, the God is letting every form of human government run its course to prove that mankind is unable to rule himself. That's the story of history. And then he'll come back. And show us all how to do it. It begins with the bad news, so bear with me. Did you know that every democracy goes from bondage to spiritual faith and then from spiritual faith to great courage? Just think of what happened at the American Revolution. And then from courage to liberty and from liberty to abundance and from abundance to selfishness. And from selfishness to apathy, and from apathy to dependence, and then from dependency back into bondage again. It's a regular cycle. Every democracy goes through this cycle, and the average democracy in history is about 200 years. Dr. Kurt Elliott, a student of history and various other things, pointed this out. It's just psychological. As people become comfortable, they get fat and happy, right? I've been that way. And then they become apathetic and then they become selfish with their stuff and they start to uh, amass a bunch of debt. And then with that, they get into too much debt and they can't pay it off and they have to start looking to the government and they say, hey, help us out, bail us out. We grew apathetic during the 80s and 90s, a great time economically, and the Cold War had come to an end, and we won, and, and um, uh, we became a fat and happy people, just lazy, and the church stopped doing what God called it to do. We became the same as the culture. The sin statistics for the church are the same as the culture, basically, and we have become apathetic as a nation, and now that apathy is going back into dependence, and you can see it. We're, we're asking the government to give us health care, to give us pensions, to give us this, to take care of that, to provide for us, to do this and that. And that dependency almost inevitably goes into bondage. Because the taxation becomes so much that it's unsustainable. And after a democracy, well, you usually go back into some kind of dictatorship or something worse. When given a choice between chaos and tyranny, people will almost always take tyranny because chaos is, you know, so unpredictable. It is unthinkable if you got all your eggs in an earthly basket. Everything is disarray. And if someone like an Adolf Hitler can come along and promise to solve this, but it's going to mean you're going to lose some of your freedoms, people will accept that if they're in chaos. That's where the linkage to bondage comes. Even very good people, when faced, you know, with no food on the table, no money, can't feed the kids, sometimes even great people turn into animals. And society tends to go corrupt because everything is falling apart at the same time. And the economy is collapsing and prices are rising and politics are running out of control and there's social and moral decay. And all of it's happening at the same time. People just can't handle that. 
That's what's happened to every democracy. Maybe that's why Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. The Bible says that out of the ultimate chaos could be in our day, could be in another day. The ultimate collapse of the global financial system, as the Bible predicts, and just about everything else, out of all that will come the ultimate tyrant. The climax of the cycle of freedom to bondage. And like Thomas Jefferson said, a government big enough to give you everything, to give you everything you want, as that government will be, is strong enough to take everything you have. And the Bible says that's what will happen. What's going on these days? You know, is God out of control? Is He still in control? Listen, God is letting every form of human government and every economic system and everything else that has to do with the governance of mankind run its course to prove that mankind is incapable of ruling himself. Every kind of government. And we already kind of know it, don't we? We know what we think of government, or at least sometimes. Never has our cynicism been greater. And maybe rightfully so sometimes. It's kind of like Will Rogers said, I don't make jokes, I just watch the government and report the facts. Sometimes that's true. Or Mark Twain, (laughs) suppose you were an idiot, and suppose you were a member of Congress, but then I repeat myself. Now that's probably a little over the top. There are honorable men still in public office, and we need more of them. Ronald Reagan was one of them, and he said one way to make sure crime doesn't pay would be to let the government run it. Here's another Reagan classic. The government's view of the economy may be summed up in just a few short phrases. If it moves, tax it. If it keeps moving, regulate it. If it stops moving, subsidize it. You know, when we're giving health care to the government, we need to have compassion for those who don't have it. But you can't help but think, if health care is expensive now, wait until you see what it costs when it's free. Right? Sometimes it seems that our government is able to come up with solutions that are a whole lot more troublesome than the problems they're supposed to solve. On one hand, the Bible teaches that the government is a great gift. That's Romans 13. We went through that last year. Without which there will be anarchy, which is worse. Anarchy is worse than even the worst government. But on the other hand, the Bible teaches that almost by definition, there will be corruption. And it instills a healthy dose of realism here. Solomon, king of Israel, said this, If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be overly shocked at the sight. For, he says, listen, one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them. He's talking about red tape. And this leads us to the millennial kingdom, so bear with me. About levels of bureaucracy, of officialdom, one deputy, uh, one you know, bureaucrat, one administrator over another. And he's saying we shouldn't be shocked when things on the governmental level in society aren't as they ought to be because society is ruled by all these layers of corrupt human government. What's going on these days? He's helping us not put our eggs in that basket. That's God's agenda. He's readying the world for something, for the heaven on earth that's going to come after the hell on earth. For the golden age of mankind. He's readying us for that. For what we call the millennium. The key passage 
on the, in the Bible on the millennium is Revelation 20. If you turn there, if you haven't already. Let me just read what it says, starting in verse 1. Then I saw an angel come down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent, the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked, so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he would be released again for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus, for proclaiming the word of God. And I saw the souls of those who had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The millennium. The millennium will begin immediately after what we call the seven-year tribulation when hell on earth is going to break out. And it'll be a thousand years. It'll rival the length of any empire by far. We're talking about the length of time between Charlemagne. How many of you remember Charlemagne back in history? Yeah. Charlemagne in the Middle Ages all the way to the present day. It'll be five times longer than the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, the peace of Christ. Five times that. Four times longer than we've been in existence as a nation, or a little, or more than three anyway. And again, just after this thousand-year period, the Bible says that heaven and earth are going to pass away, and they'll give way to a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And prior to this thousand-year period, God will let every government run its course, climaxing with the last one, the one world government of the Antichrist, when for the first time in history, there's going to be one world's currency, one man in charge, and even that form of government will fail to the extent that it becomes hell on earth, and then he'll take over. And for a thousand years, he will demonstrate on earth before earth and heaven pass away that he alone is worthy to receive power. That for him alone, power will not corrupt. And absolute power will not corrupt him absolutely. He'll be incorruptible. What will it be like? Well, let's back up for a bit. We have no idea. Well, maybe we do. We've talked about it. The degree to which our world's problems are caused by our world's governments. We've already seen it. Don't be shocked, said Solomon, when things aren't as they ought to be. Again, he's talking about red tape, levels of bureaucracy, because society is ruled by all these layers of corrupt human government. And he's saying in that passage that the governing authorities bear the final responsibility for the condition of the earth. God holds the parents of the home responsible for the family. He holds the governing authorities responsible for society, for injustice, for institutional corruption, for poverty, for pornography. The burden of holding these evils in check is on the government's shoulders. So that's where Solomon lays the blame. Not that God won't, you know, hold the pornographer or whatever accountable too, but he's going to start at the top with kind of an international uh, war tribunal, an international war uh, crimes tribunal that we call the Great White Throne. That will inaugurate the millennium when he'll call all of these rulers back from the grave and his first question to all these officials is going to be, at least many of them, I put you in charge. Why did you let that happen? 
Because Paul says that there's no government, there's no authority except from God, and they'll be held accountable. They'll have the highest authority, so the greatest accountability. Now, if that's true, then it's going to be proven during the millennium that the government is the key. Because virtually nothing will change except that. And Jesus will reign and His saints with Him in all the appointed positions. He will reign as King, Jeremiah 23.5, and act wisely and do justice and righteousness. With righteousness He will judge. And this is the name by which He will be called, the Lord our righteousness. No bribes, no scandals, no kickbacks, no turf, no pork, no power politics, not a single miscarriage of justice. I will be a swift witness. This is Christ. Matthew 3, 5, against, uh, against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me. War is going to be eliminated as a means for solving international disputes because he will judge the nations. Isaiah 2.4, in righteousness he will judge, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And it will all start at the top with the only one who is worthy to receive power, the only candidate for the souls of men that's capable of an incorruptible government. And that will be nothing less than the millennium. Stay with me. At long last, the great dream of mankind will come true. We've called it by different names. He's built it into our hearts to want it. We've called it utopia. We've called it heaven on earth. Shangri-La, Arcadia, Atlantis, uh, Camelot, the Emerald City. It keeps cropping up. The millennial kingdom. We've tasted it many times in history, but only it's been so brief. We tasted it in America. But it's never happened, has it? Why? Well, we talk about a God-shaped vacuum that's in the heart of every man, woman, and child, but there is a God-shaped vacuum in the Oval Office and in state capitals and federal buildings across the nation and in parliaments across the world because Jesus is the only answer, not only for, for, for what ails us personally, but for what ails us uh, politically, uh, economically, diplomatically, governmentally. By comparison to him, you know, these presidents and prime ministers are such small men. They're, they're in shoes as big as canoes. They hold great offices. They hold God-ordained positions of authority. And so we're to honor them and respect them. We're far better off with them with, than without them. But you compare them to Christ. You compare, you know, the, the charisma of a Gorbachev or of a Bill Clinton and the sincerity of a Reagan and add to that the, 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 the diplomacy of maybe of a Kissinger and the compassion, say, of a Jimmy Carter and the integrity of a Lincoln and the honesty of a Washington. Add any of your favorites to that list, Democrat or Republican. Try even putting on a single pair of shoes of all the greatest statements that the world has ever known, past, present, and future, and you'll not even begin to measure the stature, the greatness of Jesus Christ. The only one who is able to receive power and glory. And serving next to these great men, even next to all of them together, would be like just being a low-level clerk in Timbuktu compared to serving anywhere on the face of this earth in the administration of the one who's going to reign for a thousand years.
who the Bible says will receive riches and honor and blessing and glory from all the nations of the world. I don't know about you, but I can take refuge in that kind of hope. The hope of the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. Revelation 1.14, whose voice is like the sound of many waters, whose face is like the sun shining in its strength. And by him all things were created, Colossians 1.16, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, he's above all of them. All things have been created by him and for him. And God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, any other president, even the single world ruler, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, President, King, world ruler, to the glory of God the Father. And the government will be on his shoulders. And to the increase of his government, there will be no end. It's all invisible now, but he still is in charge now. And it will be very visible with the millennial kingdom and then forever with the eternal kingdom, as we'll see next week when there will be a whole new creation. Application. How do we apply this to our daily lives? Number one, you need to get involved in the campaign if you want to be a part of the administration. Isn't that the way things work? You need to get involved in the campaign if you want to be part of the administration. Question, are you campaigning for Christ? Is He shining through you, His light and His truth, His love, His words? The key is to back your man before he comes to reign, right? When no one was believing in him. When you were duking it out in the trenches, going door to door. Same thing. Back your man while he's still like totally invisible to all but the eyes of faith, which he loves. Is he your man? Are you living for Jesus Christ? Are you living for him or for yourself? Is he your president? You can make him president of your life right now if you just believe he came to die for your sins so that he could come and live in you and take you to be where he will be. One, get involved in the campaign. Two, you've got to start putting your eggs in another basket. Got to do it. Because it's going to happen anyway. So why hold on to it for dear life as though that's life, that's heaven on earth that we've got in America and we're losing everything because we're losing our precious country. No, we are pilgrims and wayfarers on our way to our true country. You've got to start putting your eggs in another basket. That's his agenda for his people through all of this and through whatever comes. He will strip things away to ready you for the day when you're going to get it all back anyway and a whole lot more. Now's the test of your true loyalty. So be ready to let it go. Or you could very well end up, you know, backing a tyrant who will promise the moon. Those who can't let it go because that's their God will bow to a human God if he promises to give them to fill their basket again. One, get involved in the campaign. Two, 
Start putting your eggs in another basket. Three, as you do that, realize this and rejoice in it with all your heart. No matter what happens around us, God is in control. It's all according to plan. It could very well get worse. It'll likely maybe get much worse before it gets better. But that's okay because we know that's his plan. And we're in the palm of his hand. And we can lend a helping hand to those who don't know the plan. And no matter what happens around us, we can rejoice. We can rise above the chaos because we have another perspective. And we can sing because he reigns. He's reigning now to that end. Just like we sang earlier, it's the song of the redeemed. I love this is one of my favorites of, of Newsboy's song. Rising from the African plain. Just listen, it's the song of the forgiven, drowning out the Amazon rain. His people are all over the world. The song of Asian believers filled with God's holy fire. It's every tribe, every tongue, every nation. A love song born of a grateful choir. It's all God's children singing glory, glory. Hallelujah. What? Two words. He reigns. Let it rise above the four winds caught up in the heavenly sound. Let praises echo, and I love this, from the towers of cathedrals to the faithful gathered underground in China. Of all the songs sung from the dawn of creation, some were meant to persist. Of all the bells rung from a thousand steeples, none rings truer than this, than what we've been talking about today, when all God's children sing out glory, glory. Hallelujah. He rings. Why don't we all stand and sing the chorus?